Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode, Angel is talking to Gary Singley, sociologist, cultural studies theorist. Angel is talking to Gary about the topic of his extensive research, the ancient tea horse road in southern China. And he shares how much understanding of its origins and formation can tell about today's China and its unique path to modernity. Gary gives an historical overview of the topic and shares his research discoveries of tea culture and its invisible Great Wall, unifying ethnic minorities and strengthening China's imperialism. How has the road helped to transform cultural and physical landscape and brought touristic modernity? Gary untangles the many interconnected aspects through his cross-disciplinary approach and tells us about his soon-to-be-published book. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're speaking to Gary Sigley. Um, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm fabulous. <laughs> so um, how about we start off about you telling us a bit about what you do? Um, sure. I'm a Chinese studies specialist, and I have been studying Chinese culture language since the, well, late 1980s, and I obtained a PhD at Griffith University, and I worked as a, a lecturer, a professor in Chinese studies at the University of Western Australia for about 20 years, and at the moment, I'm an independent scholar, and in the last decade, I have been focusing on southwest China, in particular Yunnan province, and examining the rise of um, what I call the mobility narratives, and in particular, the ancient tea horse road, which is a, a, a concept which was formulated in the early 1990s. And I got to know some of the scholars involved in coming up with that concept of the tea horse road. And I was able to following their activities and scholarship and other uh, things that they were involved in, they kind of uh, see and trace the history of this concept over the last two decades. So tell us a bit more about this Tea Horse Road and how you found your way into studying it. Well, I found my way into this um, before I started doing the research on tea and the Tea Horse Road uh, in southwest China. I was doing more general studies of Chinese uh, government and uh, population studies in particular, um, but government more generally and uh, governmentality, the Michel Foucault's notion of governmentality. But I've always been attracted to the southwest of China, given its beautiful environment, mountains and ethnic diversity. I really liked it down there. Every time I visited, I was very attracted. And so eventually I decided it would be good to find a project to do down there and as it happens, one of my friends, when I was visiting Kunming, the provincial capital, said, well, why don't you investigate the Tea Horse Road? I can introduce you to the professor who came up with the, the name, the Tea Horse Road. And so I met Professor Muji Hong, um, and it just kind of escalated from there. And I've just started uh, studying that uh, Tea Horse Road uh, since then. <clears throat> so what is the Tea Horse Road? The Tea Horse Road is a system of routes that connect the tea producing areas of southwest China. Um, in Yunnan, those areas are down near the border of Laos and Vietnam. 
uh, and the and along the border that Yunnan shares with um, uh, Myanmar. Uh, these are regions where they have been growing tea for uh, a long time, well over a, a thousand years, maybe two thousand years. It's certainly one possibly one of the origins of the tea of human tea cultivation itself. So the tea is grown in those areas, um, then it is processed, and then historically it was transported by horse and mule caravan to um, all over China, um, but in particular it also went to Tibet, and then from Tibet also found its way into Nepal and India. So they came up with this concept of the tea horse road in the early 1990s, uh, six young scholars who were looking for a, a common kind of cultural theme to kind of uh, a narrative theme to kind of link and join up the dots as they saw it about the story of the different ethnicities in southwest China and Tibet. And so they decided that rather than talking about the Southern Silk Road, the, the, Silk, the Southern Silk Road, which also goes through um, that region, they said a better um, object, um, a cultural object and physical object would be to talk about tea. And so that's what they've been doing since then. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah, so what has been some exciting research moments for you? Um, well, for me, the, this, this, um, given that the tea road is a route and it starts off uh, in the tea producing areas in southwest China, and we call them uh, Pua and Sichuan uh, Bana and Lintang. Um, these are very ethnically diverse regions, and some of the tea trees that they grow there, um, probably people are familiar with the tea tree grown as a shrub, like a hedge form, that we see the tea plantations um, in India and Sri Lanka and elsewhere, and also not very far from Auckland, there's a um, tea plantation in Waikato. Um, these are hedge varieties, but the tea plants they grow in southwest China are actually trees. They grow them arboreally as trees. And they grow them in groves. Some of the groves can be just a, a couple of trees. Some could be well over 100 or several hundred trees. And some of these trees are very old, uh, several hundred years. Trees of 200 years are very common. Some of the trees grow up to 800 years, and some are claimed to be over 1,000 years old. So going down to that region and discovering that these tea was growing like this and uh, seeing these tea trees and interacting with the, with the local different ethnic groups was really um, an eye-opener for me to see that um, this is how you know, tea is grown in this kind of ecological and cultural environment. That was you know, very interesting for me. Other than that, there have been many, many other interesting things that I've been able to do whilst doing this research, including not just visiting the tea areas, but uh, also uh, liking the hiking in the outdoors. I joined up with some friends and colleagues and traveled with the, um, the caravans. We organized some mule and horse caravans to kind of explore the old tea routes in, uh, that's in the areas going up towards the northwest of Yunnan, getting closer to Tibet, and doing some of those expeditions through the mountains, um, exploring the, the old tea roads and trying to find them and asking the locals where they were and stuff was really exciting and, and, and really interesting. I really enjoyed doing that too. That does sound really interesting. Um, so... On this um, podcast, we often talk about the human relationships to the research that we are doing. So um, how has um, this impacted humans, <laughs> to be more blunt? Like, how have they interacted with the T-roads? Okay, so um, as I've said before, 
Um, before these uh, these young scholars, well, they're not so young anymore, but that was in the early 1990s, came up with this term, the ancient T-horse road. Um, before that time, the dominant route narrative in that area was the Southern Silk Road. The Southern Silk Road is said to go from Sichuan or Xi'an or Sichuan and Chengdu, and then goes down through Yunnan and into uh, Myanmar, Burma, um, possibly also through Tibet that way. So it's a kind of lesser known cousin of the Northern Silk Road, which goes across from Xi'an or Chang'an across uh, uh, north northwest China through Xinjiang and then through Central Asia and on like that. So the Southern Silk Road was a dominant narrative. Um, these younger scholars, as I said, they decided that, well, Silk wasn't really telling the story very well uh, for that region. So they said probably we should focus on something else. And they decided that tea was the story that should be really told. So through their research, these I should also uh, note that these scholars are ethnically, um, they make, they're, they're, uh, the Han Chinese, uh, some Tibetan um, uh, different ethnic minorities by and other minorities in Yunnan. So they also kind of represent a bit of a diversity themselves. What they wanted to do was, were they working within a certain nationalist historiography? They were quite patriotic in that way, to put it simply. So their kind of idea was that the T Road can tell the story of the of the coming into being of the common ethnic culture, the shared ethnic culture in southwest China, and also including Tibet into that story as well. So it was a very nationalist kind of project as well that kind of supported the mainstream dominant narrative of the, the Chinese nation state. It was in no way in opposition to that narrative. It was actually um, trying to work with it, although adjusted somewhat, um, because prior to that period, they also, one of the other things they were dealing with was that Yunnan has often been regarded as a bit of a periphery, a borderland, um, uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a dead end. Um, they wanted to kind of re readjust that narrative to say that, well, hang on a minute, Yunnan's not a dead end. Yunnan has always been a very important ethnic corridor, trading corridor, pilgrimage corridor. Um, and through the ancient T-Horse Road narrative, we can re-establish that important relationship that Yunnan has as a, as a connecting bridge between central China uh, and then into Tibet and Southeast Asia and, and so on. And so this is obviously a story that includes all those different ethnic groups uh, within that region. And as I said, to summarize it, they are arguing that the T tells the story. T is the thing that kind of unites these ethnicities in a kind of harmonious fashion um, and, just, uh, um, and in that way. Indeed, one of the scholars, um, one of the more up-and-coming younger T-Road scholars, describes the T culture as an invisible great wall that kind of unifies um, these ethnic minorities and in that way prevents them from being um, susceptible to the kind of imperialist logic of uh, foreign, foreign, foreign uh, influence. Yeah, I'm not sure if that makes sense. No, no, it definitely does. Um, you're talking about um, tea culture. What do you think tea meant to a lot of the people that you were living with? Uh, well, the tea, the tea is well. Tea is actually very, very important to many of the ethnic minorities. Well, should just for a start say that tea is actually very important to. Um, Many people in the world, not just in China, but um, tea is one of those things that once once a, a culture starts consuming tea and it becomes habitual, you, you can't live without it. You've got to have it. So um, tea has actually played a very, very important role 
historically in um, in in Han Chinese relations with um, the peoples on the on the periphery. Um, so tea has been a very important part so for the people that produce the tea, grow the tea in southwest China. Tea is very important, and for example, the Bulan people um, have historically have had certain rituals and festivals to an ancestor they venerate, who they regard as um, the kind of the, the, the ancestor, that, a godlike figure that gave them the, the knowledge of how to grow tea. Um, the Han Chinese also have a similar version of that story, and indeed many of the other groups have this kind of um, tea origin stories. And tea plays a very important part in their rituals, um, in, in festivals. You know, tea will always be present in weddings, um, in venerating the ancestors, uh, and so on. And, of course, tea is a very, very important part of sociability, of daily life. And the first thing you do when you go to visit somebody is they will offer you um, some tea. Um, so, you know, it, uh, when tea was also being transported in that region, it was usually compressed into, into what they call tea cakes, about 375 grams, a little disc, disc shape. They put them in the discs and then they piled them up and they wrapped them in paper and then they um, piled them up into sevens and then they wrapped them in bam dried bamboo leaves and tied them up with bamboo twine. Those, um, those tea cakes also could form as a form of currency in some of the markets where they would go trade. So coal also became a, bit, uh, a form of currency. Um, yeah, so tea was ubiquitous. It was, a, it was an habitual practice, the tea drinking, and it became a very, very important part of daily life, of just ordinary familial, family life, but also of religious life as well. You know, for example, in the, in the Tibetan lamaries, um, Tibetan uh, lamas, monks, they begin their day by brewing up their, 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 their yak butter tea, and throughout the day they just keep drinking the stuff like it's water. So it's really, it's really, really crucial and very, very important part of, of life. So it's a crucial part of um, life over there, part of the everyday sort of rituals, isn't it? Absolutely. I've also, from reading your articles, um, you mentioned that tea was an industry that had its height and then it dropped for a while and now it's starting to pick up again. Can you elaborate more on that? Uh, yeah. So uh, let me just say by that. So um, once a, a culture or society starts drinking tea, that's it. You can't turn back. You've got mm -hmm. to have tea. It becomes an habitual part of everyday life, okay? Uh, a bit like some people are tea drinkers, some people are coffee drinkers. Well, for many people in the world and many people in China, it's, it's been tea. Tea has been the main story. Um, now, of course, not every, not, not every place can grow tea. So, for example, in places like Tibet, Mongolia, where it's very cold or too high altitude, they couldn't grow tea. Or they didn't have access to the tea plant. Like, for example, in, um, in, in, in the English didn't have the, have the tea plant. Okay, so they had to go and get it. Um, so the, the dynastic um, uh, ruling uh, authorities in China, uh, historically, they saw this as an opportunity to kind of what they would say manage the, the barbarians, so to speak. So they actually, <clears throat> um, for example, Tibetans and Mongolians, they couldn't grow tea, but they needed the tea. They wanted tea. So um, they had to <clears throat> get the tea from somewhere, had to get it from China, and the Chinese authorities set up special tea bureaus to kind of um, a monopoly on the tea trade, and they attempted to use that monopoly on the tea trade to um, maybe rein in some of the um, unpredictable and unfavorable behavior on, on that they that sometimes those people on the steppe or in the high plateaus will cause trouble for the for the dynastic government. So that was one thing. Um, so China, for a long time, for hundreds of years, had a virtual monopoly on the tea trade. So not just in southwest China, later 
obviously most of the tea was was grown in central China. Um, that that kind of transformed a bit, but and in, in Sichuan and in, 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 in uh, central and eastern China, um, so China had a monopoly on the tea trade. So these other peoples around China, they all needed to get their tea. The Tibetans, the Mongolians. Uh, later, the Europeans discovered tea. They needed to get their tea, um, and so the only place they could get it from was from China. And uh, maybe some people will be familiar with the story that the British East India Company. In getting the tea from China, um, the Chinese, in, 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 in return, they didn't really value anything from the British market. They didn't, they didn't really want to trade anything. All they wanted was silver. So that was a drain the, the silver coppers of the British East Indian Company. So the, the British East Indian Company came up with the idea of, well, let's trade tea for opium. And that began the, the modern-day opium trade in China. And we all know that led eventually to the Opium War. Um, after the Opium War, um, the British opened up the Chinese market. They opened up the, the treaty ports to um, uh, direct trade and, and also missionary activity uh, as a part of those so-called unequal treaties that came about after that first Opium War in uh, 1840, thereabouts. Um, what, what the British East India Company also did is they had a monopoly. From the British side, they had a monopoly on the tea trade, so only – um, for the British market, only the British East India Company was able to sell tea into the British market. Now, in the 19th century, the, the British the government decided they were going to end that monopoly. They were going to open up to anybody to sell, sell tea in, in, in their market. So the, the British East India Company saw the writing on the wall and they said, well, we really need to start growing our own tea in India. So they had tried to do that, but they weren't very successful. Um, so they sent a gentleman by the name of Robert Fortune, who was a horticulturalist and later became the curator of Kew Gardens in London. He went to, um, to, to China and he actually acquired tea seed, tea plants, and also brought back with him to India six um, tea farmers from China. And he helped set up the tea, the tea plantations in Darjeeling. And uh, a few decades later, um, the British were producing more tea uh, and, uh, from that market than they than they were they were getting from China. So that was that was the kind of nail in the coffin for the Chinese tea trade. And from about so from about the 1890s, the, the Chinese tea trade begins to um, decline uh, uh, very quickly as the British establish those markets and those tea producing areas in India, Sri Lanka, and Kenya, and, and other places around the world. Um, so the the Chinese tea trade uh, suffered a quite of a shock from that. Then after 1949, when the, when the Communist Party came to power, um, during the Maoist period, the emphasis was put on growing grains to be self-sufficient in food, and tea was regarded as a luxury item. So a lot of tea plantations were ripped up to build to plant grain, uh, or they were neglected. So that was another kind of, um, another kind of thing the tea industry had to deal with uh, in, in the wake of the other things that happened before. So it wasn't until the 1980s when the Chinese government started on the process of reform and openness that they began to revitalize the tea, the tea trade, the tea growing, um, began to be reestablished. And as we get into the 1990s and the 2000s, we see the, the, the growing incomes of the Chinese middle class and also just the general rediscovering of Chinese culture, which is you know, traditional culture, including the tea culture. And it's kind of created a new kind of tea. Not only the tea production has taken off, but also the, the rediscovery and the re-embracing of um, tea culture uh, has really um, uh, hit, hit new levels and become really quite a dynamic thing in China itself. Yeah.
Sorry, that was a bit long to explain, but that's, that's basically it in a nutshell. No, we need it. <laughs> that was very interesting. And your profession started off, you're an anthropologist, right? Um, uh, I, do, I, I do do ethnographic kind of work, but I, I wasn't trained as an anthropologist. Area study specialist, um, but I would probably describe myself more as a kind of uh, um, sociologist slash cultural studies theorist. So um, I was just wondering, how has that helped you with your studies, like giving you a different perspective, say, from a historian or another social scientist? Um, well, I've come from, a, well, as I said, uh, I came from a area studies background, which is tends to be more multidisciplinary. So I picked up di- various different um, <laughs> strategies. I guess the one thing about being a kind of cross-disciplinary kind of approach is that you don't feel bound by the restrictions that you might encounter if you were just, for example, a pure anthropologist or if you're just a, a pure historian. Um, they might do uh, fantastic work on the tea, on tea culture and on tea history. But um, if you're if you're a bit more adventurous and you kind of attempt to straddle some of these disciplines, you can you can gain insights um, by by not being inhibited or, or being limited by the disciplinary boundaries. So I feel in the way I've been able to do that. Of course, whether or not my ethnography or my historic my his- historical work is up to scratch. That'll be up to um, the specialists to debate and argue when they look at the, the work. Um, but yeah, I, I feel I have been able to gain some insights by using some of the ethnographic kind of approach when I was on the field in China uh, with the scholars and the tea farmers uh, and also that's looking at the development of tea tourism. Um, and also, on the other hand, I've been able to go into the archive and examine some of the historical material as well um, and uh, compare that to actually what the accounts of the Chinese scholars themselves. So uh, I guess that's those are some of the benefits of being a, um, a, multi, a multidisciplinary kind of uh, researcher. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there would be a bit more um, different ways for you to look at things, eh? Yeah. Also, um, so the next question would be, where do you see research going? Like, where do you want to look to now? In terms of like future projects, oh yeah, yeah, there is one thing that I want to do. One thing I discovered is that the difference between the ancient tea horse road and the Silk Road. This is something the scholars go on about quite a lot. Is that of course the Silk Road? They don't like the Silk Road. Well, they're a bit hostile to the idea of the Silk Road because of its associations with foreign imperialists, as they see them, um, uh, who came up with the idea of the Silk Road. These were German and German uh, geographers and so on who went to China and they came up with the idea of the Silk Road. They, they are very proud to say that they came up as Chinese nationalists. They came up with the idea of the T-Road. So you, know, you don't need this idea of the Silk Road. We can talk about in our own terms. So they established their own discourse. But they also describe the T-Road as a living heritage. That is, um, the caravans, um, now you won't find any long-distance caravans like in southwest Tibet anymore. They're long gone. But people still are, are reliant on their mules and horses in the mountains um, because even even though the Chinese government are rolling out um, uh, roads and expressways in, in ways you wouldn't believe possible uh, in, the, in, in the mountainous area, they're really making amazing strides in that area. Still, nonetheless, the villages and communities way up the, on the side of the mountains, they still need their mules and horses. So there's still a bit of a heritage of this um, caravan culture that's still there. And what I found actually is that um, during the Second World War, which in China they described that as the Sino-Japanese War, 
Um, when the Japanese, the full-scale invasion took place in 1937 and the nationalist government retreated from Nanjing to Chongqing, um, the nationalist governments, uh, well, you probably also remember there was a thing called the Burma Road. Um, that was the major supply route. And then, of course, the Japanese invaded Burma and they cut off that supply route for the Allied forces and for the Chinese uh, government at the time. So um, people will be familiar in the West about the, um, this, the idea of the hump, that is that um, the Allied forces in India would, would fly the very important military and other supplies over the Himalayan mountains into China. Um, and that was called flying over the hump. Uh, and they were mainly like, I think, mainly British and American um, Air Force uh, um, in control of that operation. But what, and I, so I knew about that, and that's celebrated also even in China, they recognized that was a major contribution. But what I didn't realize was that at the same time, the, the Chinese government on the ground in um, Western China, but also especially in South of China and Tibet, they actually remobilized the caravans trade. They said, right, you know, they've cut off, uh, the Burma road's been cut off. What are we going to do? We need, and also this airplane's flying the supply. That's great, but it's not sufficient enough for all our needs. We've got a lot of people here. So they actually, they, they mobilized the caravan trade. So in terms of the overall numbers of uh, mules and horses and muleteers and the amount of stuff that was being transported on this on these old T-road routes, um, it actually reaches its historical peak during that Sino-Japanese war in the 1940s. Um, so that was actually quite interesting for me to discover that. And I think that's a, a story about, you know, given that people are really interested in, in war stories uh, and, and World War II in particular, uh, I think I would like to write up a bit more on that because I haven't seen anything in Chinese. There have been some, there has been a bit of stuff written about it, but in English, I haven't really come across anything that talks sufficiently in depth about how important the remobilization of those caravan traders and the mules, the mule and horse trade and all that kind of stuff, how important it was for the Chinese war effort and indeed the Allied war effort um, during that time. I think you should definitely do that because that does actually sound really fascinating and I'm sure mm. you'd learn a lot from that as well. Yeah, I've already started gathering the material and um, yeah, uh, that's one other project I want to do at some point, yeah. Oh, it sounds exciting already. <laughs> um, well, I think I mentioned to you uh, before, um, I'm in the process of finishing the book, which is the main uh, result of that 10 years or more of research. And I uh, hope to have that manuscript finished in the next two months and getting close. Um, and so that's, that's the manuscript. Basically, in a nutshell, you know, what I'm really looking at is modernity. It's looking at um, uh, regional modernity, um, Yunnanese modernity through the grid of the ancient T-horse road. It just so happens now that uh, it took me so long to do this research. By the time I've got to writing it up, um, other things have happened in the background that make it more interesting. One of those is the rise of the, um, the Chinese government's official policy of the Belt and Road Initiative. You probably heard of that and some of your listeners will not definitely know what that is about. The Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is a major policy uh, platform of Xi Jinping that was uh, launched in 2013. That policy initiative revives the notion of the Silk Road in a major way. So I've, I've been able to examine how the ancient T-horse road intersects with the narrative now of, the, of this kind of rediscovery of the Silk Road. Um, and some of those T-skulls have kind of tried to address that and, and, and examine how the T-road can fit into that narrative. So that's part of my research at the moment. After I finish this book, I, I have a few essays that I've drafted 
uh, just about tea culture more generally for, for more for a Western kind of uh, general audi uh, audience and reader uh, that I'd like to put together. And after that, I haven't really decided um, what my next uh, uh, approach will be or, or what I want to focus on. I just um, yeah, at the moment I'm just focusing on on this project. And then, as I said, I've just got the some essays essays on tea culture that I want to put together into a little volume uh, by the end of the year. So yeah, that'll keep me busy. Yeah, it would definitely keep you busy. Sounds like a few big projects there, especially your book. Um, so did you want to talk more about your book while we're here since it's coming out in two months? What would be the main focus of it? Okay, so the main focus is, as I said, it's the overall kind of approach is to discuss this idea of modernity, which um, any scholar who's looked at this topic or any student, it's a, it's a very big topic in itself. And it's probably one of the defining topics of, uh, of social sciences in the last uh, 50 or even 100, 150 years, um, this topic. So um, that's been very difficult to approach and how to narrow it down. So I've narrowed it down to what is modernity in terms of a regional perspective in southwest China and how does the narrative of the T-Horse Road kind of fit into that narrative. So in this sense, modernity is I'm talking about the rise of nationalism, um, the rise of ethnic identity, um, and all those things tie very closely to the narrative of the T horse road, as I explained before. It's very, it's kind of, it, it ties itself very closely to the official, official nationalist narrative of the People's Republic of China. So it's very closely tied to that. Um, so I look at that, and also, as I mentioned right at the beginning of this uh, podcast interview, I mentioned this idea of the mobility narrative. So mobility is also one of the other defining features of our modern times that people are moving around uh, at great rates around the world. Um, and so in itself, the T-Road is a kind of mobility narrative, as a, uh, so it's like the Silk Road. Um, but also at the same time, um, the, the caravans of the past obviously are known more. And China now has a new mobility narrative built around the, the speed um, and the development of expressways, of airports, uh, of high-speed rail. So I'm looking and comparing how um, the, the, this mobility narrative um, it's kind of change, changing the, the face of Yunnan. So the ironic thing is that as they rediscovered this idea of the, or they discovered, and they came up with this idea of the ancient T-Horse Road just at the time when um, Yunnan was about to be transformed and opened up to the outside world in terms of mobility like it had never been before. And so I, I refer to the kind of the changing land, literally the landscape is being transformed through the, the building of expressways, where, you know, um, blowing up the side of a mountain and, and building this, not just the, the transport infrastructure. The other aspect of this is that um, the mobility narrative is tied closely to tourism within China, and especially domestic tourism. And so in Yunnan, when this um, T-Road came up as a concept, first of all, it was mainly just a scholarly idea. But it just happened that there was a perfect timing because the, the local governments the tourism authorities, the cultural um, authorities in Yunnan were looking for something to, as a, as a, more, as a form of branding or packaging their, their product. Um, and they came on this idea of the T-Road um, to be the most kind of beneficial and efficient way to kind of promote Yunnan as an, and in terms of the branding. So that really took off very quickly. So the T-Road now in China has become a kind of like a, it's a very well-known concept, very well-known idea. Um, and some of these scholars now, they crossed over from being like doing their pure scholarship on the T-Road to also to become advisors. Um, and I call them like this is their cultural entrepreneur uh, side. 
they actually were were providing an, advi- an advisory role to tourism authorities to how to to package and market the the T road. So you see the development of T road theme parks, of um, the transformation of some of the old towns along the along the old T road into these kind of like well they're kind of themed um, towns now. So uh, that, so those the expression of that kind of um, tourism. Um, a kind of touristic modernity is also one of the things that I've been looking at as well in, in, in the book. So it's not just purely about the scholarship of the T-Road, that's one part, but it's also about how the T-Road as an idea has transformed the, um, the cultural and physical landscape in terms of this kind of the rise of a, of a touristic modernity and this new mobility narrative around speed and movement uh, in China itself. That sounds really great, to be honest. I would definitely recommend all my listeners to go check that out. Um, no, definitely. It sounds amazing. I'll probably get it too when it comes out. <laughs> we'll link it in our um, episode for anyone that wants to take a look. Yeah. <laughs> They definitely are. Well, thank you for being on our podcast. I'm going to link all the articles and your upcoming book onto our episode for our listeners to look at, which I highly recommend they do. And yeah, thank you for being on the show for us. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.